chapter number 43 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arthur Piantadosi. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Chapter 43 Wherein is shown how the artful daughter got into trouble. And so were you your old friend, was it? asked Mr. Claypole, otherwise bolder, when, by virtue of the compact entered into between them, he had removed next day to Fagin's house. Caught why the way more last night. Every man's his own friend, my dear replied Fagin, with his most insinuating grin. He hasn't as good one as himself anywhere. It's all times, replied Morris Bolter, assuming the air of a man of the world. Some people are nobody's enemies but their own, you know. Don't believe that, said Fagin, when a man was his own enemy. It's only because he's too much his own friend, not because he's careful, but everybody but himself. Pooh, pooh! There ain't no such a thing in nature. There won't be! If there is! replied Mr. Bolter. That stands to reason. Some conjurers say the number three is the magic number, and some say number seven. It's neither, my friends, neither. It's number one. Ah! cried Master Bolter. Number one forever! A little community like ours, my dear, said Fagin, and felt it necessary to qualify his vision with a general number one, without considering me too as the same. And all the other young people. Oh, the devil! exclaimed Mr. Bolter. You see, resumed Fagin, affecting to disregard this interruption. We are so mixed up together and identified in our own interests that it must be so. For instance, it's your object to take care of number one, meaning yourself. Certainly! replied Mr. Bowser. You're about right! Well, you can take care of yourself, number one, with taking care of me, number one. Number two, you mean, said Mr. Bowser, was largely endowed with a quality of selfishness. No, I don't, retorted Fagin. I'm of the same importance as you do. As you are to yourself. Oh, say, interrupted Mr. Bolter, you're a very nice man, and I'm very fond of you, but we ain't quite so thick together as all that comes to. Only think, said Fagin, shrugging his shoulders and stretching out his hands. Only consider, you've done what's a very pretty thing. And what I love you for doing, but what at the same time would put the rot round your throat that's so very easily tied and 
it's a very difficult to unloose in plain English. Porter! Mr. Bolter put his hand to his neckerchief, as it did feel inconveniently tight, and it murmured an assent, qualified in tone but not in substance. The gallows, continued Fagin, the gallows, my dear, is an ugly finger post, which points out a very sharp and sharp turning that has stopped many a bold fellow's career on the broad highway. To keep in the easy road and keep it at a distance is object number one with you. Of course it is, replied Mr. Bolter. What are you talking about such things for? Only to show you my meaning clearly, said the Jew, raising his eyebrows. To be able to do that would depend upon me. But to keep my little business all smug, I depend not on you. The first is your number one, the second my number one. The more you value your number one, the more careful you must be of mine. So become at last what I told you at first, that regard for number one holds us all together, and must do so, lest we should all go to pieces in company. That's true, rejoined Mr. Bolter thoughtfully. Oh, you're conning, old codger! Mr. Fagin saw with delight that a tribute to his powers was no mere compliment, but he had really impressed his recruit with a sense of his wily genius, which it was most important that he should entertain at the outset of their acquaintance. To strengthen an impression so desirable and useful, he followed up the blow by acquainting him, in some detail, with the magnitude and extent of his operations, blending truth and fiction together, as best served his purpose and bringing both to bear with so much art that Mr. Bolter's respect visibly increased, and became tempered at the same time with a degree of wholesome fear which it was highly desirable to awaken. It's that mutual trust we have in each other that consoles me under heavy losses, said Fagin. My best hand was taken from me yesterday morning, you don't mean to say he died, cried Mr. Bolter. No, no, replied Fagin. Not so bad as that. Not quite so bad. What, I suppose he was? Wanted, interposed Fagin. Yes, he was wanted. Very particular, inquired Mr. Bolter. No replied Fagin. Not very. He was charged with attempting to pick a pocket, and they found a silver snuff-box in him. His own, my dear, his own, for he took snuff himself, was very fond of it. They remanded him till today, for they thought they knew the owner. Ah, he was worth fifty boxes, and I'd give the price of his many to have him back. You should have known the Dodger, my dear. You should have known the Dodger. Well, but I shall know him, I hope. Don't you think so? Said Mr. Bolter. I'm doubtful about 
about it, replied Vade with a sigh. If they don't get any fresh air, it'll only be a summer radical eviction. We shall live him back again in to six weeks or so. But if they do, it's a case of lagging. They know what a clever lad he is. He'll be a lifer. They'll make the offer nothing less than a lifer. We mean by lagging and a lifer. Demanded Mr. Bolter. What's the good of talking in that way to me when I don't you speak to I don't understand you? Fagin was about to translate these mysterious expressions into the vulgar tongue and being interrupted, Mr. Bolter would have been informed they represented that combination of words, transportation for life. When the dialogue was cut short by the entry of Master Bates, with his hands in his breeches' pockets and his face twisted into a look of semi-comical woe. It's a watch, again, said Charlie, when he and his new companion had been made known to each other. What do you mean? I found your gentleman is out in the box. Two or three mortals coming to identify him. He almost built for a passage out, replied Master Bates. I must have it all suit of morning, making an outbound to visit him when, of all he sets out for his travels, the thing of Jock Dawkins, Lummy Jock, the Dodger, the artful Dodger going abroad for a common two penny out Betty Sneeze box. I never thought he'd done it under a gold watch chain and seals at the lowest. Oh, why didn't he drop some of rich old gentlemen all your valuables? And go out as a gentleman, no out poor prig, without no holding on glory. With his expression of feeling for his unfortunate friend, Master Bates sat himself on the nearest chair with an aspect of chagrin and despondency. What you talk about his having me either honour nor glory for? exclaimed Fagin, darting an angry look at his pupil. Wasn't you always the top sire among you all? Is there one of you that could touch him or come near him on any set? Eh? No one, replied Master Bates, in a noise I did husky word again. No one! And what do you talk of? replied Bates angrily. What are you blabbering for? Is it a miracle, is it? said Charlie, chafing the perfect defiance of his venerable friend by the current of his regards. So why you going to come out on the dinkman? There's nobody will ever know out for what it was. I'm going to stand in the Newgate calendar. Perhaps we not wear it all. On oh my eye, my eye, what a blow it is. Ah, <laughs> cried Fagin, extending his right hand and turning to Miss Bolter in a fit of chuckling which shook him as though he had palsy. See what pride they're taking their profession, my dear. Ain't it beautiful? Mr. Bolter nodded his scent, and Fagin, after contemplating the reef of Charlie Bates for some seconds with evident satisfaction, stepped up to that young gentleman and patted him on the shoulder. Never mind, Charlie, said Fagin soothingly. It'll come out. I'll be sure to come out. Well, oh no, what 
to bid a fellow he was. You show it himself, and not disgrace his old pals and teachers. Think how young he is, too. What's the distinction, Charlie, to be liked at his time of life? Well, it isn't all it is, said Charlie, a little consoled. He shall have all he wants, continued the Jew. He shall be kept in the stone jug. Charlie, like a gentleman, like a gentleman, with his beer every day and money in his pocket to pitch and horse with if he can't spend it. No, Charlie, though, cried Charlie Bates. Aye, that is Charlie, replied Fagin, and we'll have a big week, Charlie, one that's got the greatest gift of the garb, will carry on his defence, and shall make a speak for himself, too, if you like, as he will read it all in the papers. Ah, for torture, shrieks of laughter, here the court was engrossed. Eh, Charlie, eh. Oh, oh, after estimate. Oh, no, that would be, wouldn't it, Fagin? I say, I have, it would bother him, wouldn't it? cried Fagin. He shall. He will. I want to be sure, so he will, repeated Charlie, rubbing his hands. I think I see him now, cried the Jew, bending his eyes to bonnet approval. So do I, cried Charlie. Ah, so do I. I see you all for me for my soul, I do, Fagin. War game, war regular game. All the big wigs round look solemn and Jack Dog is addressing them as intimate in Cornwall as even you and the Josie Home song make a speech on a dinner. <laughs> in Mr. Uh, Mr. Fagin, it so well humoured his young friend's eccentric disposition, and Master Bates, who had at first been disposed to consider the imprisoned daughter rather in the light of a victim, now looked upon him as the chief actor in a scene of most uncommon and unscritted humour and felt quite impatient for the arrival of the time when his old companion should have so favourable an opportunity of displaying his abilities. We must know how he gets on today, by some handy means or other, said Fagin. Let me think. Shall I go? asked Charlie. Not for the world, replied Fagin. Oh, you're mad, my dear. Stark mad. Did you walk into very place where... No, Charlie, no. One is enough to lose its time. You don't mean to go yourself, I suppose, said Charlie with a humorous leer. It wasn't quite fit, replied Fagin, shaking his head. What were you saying this new cove? asked Master Bates, laying his hand on Nur's arm. Nobody knows him. Why, if it isn't mind, observed Fagin. Mind, interposed Charlie. What she have to mind? Really nothing, my dear, said Fagin, turning to Mr. Bolter. Really nothing. Oh, I dare say, you know, observed Noah, backing towards the door and shaking his head with a sober alarm. No, no, not that. It's not my department, that ain't. What bum is he gone, Fagin? inquired Master Bates, surveying Noah's leg form with much disgust. Cool away with anything's wrong, 
and it no riddles when everything's raw. Is that his branch? Never mind, retorted Mr. Bowser. Uh, don't you take liberties with your superior little boy and find yourself in the wrong shop? Master Bates laughed so vehemently. <laughs> At this magnificent threat, it was some time before Fagin could interpose and present to Mr. Bowser that he incurred no possible danger in visiting the police office, that inasmuch as no account of the little affair in which he had engaged, nor any description of his person had yet been forwarded to the metropolis. It was very probable that he was not even suspected of having resorted to it for shelter, and that if he were properly disguised, it would be a safer spot for him to visit as any in London, inasmuch as it would be, of all places, the only last to which he could be supposed likely to resort of his own free will. Persuaded in part by these representations, but overborne in much greater degree by his fear of faking, Mr. Bolton at length consented, with a very bad grace, to undertake the expedition. By Fagin's directions, he immediately substituted for his own attire a wagoner's frock, velveteen breeches, and leather leggings, all of which articles the Jew had had it on hand. He was likewise furnished with a felt hat, furnished with turn bike tickets, and a carter's whip. Thus equipped, he was to saunter into the office as some country fellow from Covent Garden Market might be supposed to do for the gratification of his curiosity. And as he was as awkward, ungainly, and raw-boned a fellow as need be, Mr. Fagin had no fear but that he would look the part of perfection. These arrangements completed, he was informed of the necessary signs and tokens by which to recognise the artful dodger, and was conveyed by Master Bates through dark and winding ways to within a very short distance of Bow Street, having described the precise situation of the office, and accompanied it with copious directions how he was to walk straight up the passage, when he got into the side and pulled off his hat as he went into the room. Charlie Bates bade him hurry on alone, and promised to it is returned on the spot of their parting. No Claypo, or Morris Bolter, as the reader pleases, punctually followed the directions he had received, which, Master Bates being pretty well acquainted with the locality, was so exact that he was enabled to gain the magisterial presence without asking any question, or meeting with any interruption by the way. He found himself jostled among a crowd of people, chiefly women, who were huddled together in a dirty frousy room, at the upper end of which was a raised platform railed off from the rest, with a dock for the prisoners on the left hand against the wall, a box for witnesses in the middle, and a desk for the magistrates on the right, that awful locality last named, being screened off by a partition which concealed the bench from the common gaze, and left the vulgar to imagine, if they could, the full majesty of justice. There were only a couple of women in the dock, who were nodding to their admiring friends, while the clerk read some dispositions to a couple of policemen and a man in plain clothes leant over the table. A jailer stood reclining against the dock rail, tapping his nose listlessly with a large key, except when he repressed his undue tendency to conversation among the idlers by proclaiming silence, or looking sternly up to bide someone and take that baby out. And the gravity of justice was disturbed by feeble cries, half smothered in the mother's shawl from some meagre infant. The room smelt close and unwholesome. The walls were dark discoloured, and the ceiling blackened. There was an old smoky bus over the mantel-shelf, and a dusty clock above the dock, 
the only thing present that seemed to go on as it ought for depravity or poverty or habitual acquaintance with both and left a taint on all the inanimate matter hardly less unpleasant than the thick greasy scum on every inanimate object that frowned upon it noah looked eagerly about him for the dodger for although there were several women who would have done very well for that distinguished character's mother or sister and more than one man who might be supposed to bear a strong resemblance to his father nobody at all was answering to the description given him of mr dawkins was to be seen he waited in a state of much suspense and uncertainty until the woman being committed for trial went flaunting out and then was quickly relieved by the appearance of another person who he felt at once could be no other than the object of his visit it was indeed mr dawkins who shuffling into the office with big coat sleeves tucked up as usual his left hand in his pocket and his hat on his right hand preceding the jailer with a rolling gait altogether indescribable and taking his place in the dock requested it in an audible voice to know what he was placed in that air a situation for hold your tongue will you said the jailer i'm an englishman ain't i rejoined the dodger where are my privileges you'll get your privileges soon enough retorted the jailer and pepper with them we'll see what a secretary of state for home affairs has got to say to them beaks if i don't replied mr dawkins now then what is this here business i shall make the magistrates dispose of this here little affair and it'll keep me while they read the paper for i've got an appointment with the gentleman with the city as I am a man of my word, very punctual on business matters, he'll go away if I am to my time. Then perhaps there won't be an action for damage against them as kept me away. Oh no, certainly not. At this point, the Dodger, with a show of being very particular with a view to proceedings to he had thereafter, desired the jailer to communicate the names of them two files, which was on the bench which so tickled the spectators that they laughed almost as heartily as Baxter Bates would have done if he had heard the request. Silence there! cried the jailer. What's this? inquired one of the magistrates. A pickpocketing case, your worship. Has the boy ever been here before? He ought to have been many times, replied the jailer. He's been pretty well everywhere else. I know him well, your worship. Oh, you know me, do you? cried the artful, making a note of this statement. Very good. That's a state of devolution of character, anyway. Here yeah, there was another laugh, and another cry of silence. Now, then, where are the weaknesses? said the clerk. Oh, that's right, asked the daughter. Where are they? I should like to see them. This wish was immediately gratified, for a policeman stepped forward who had seen the prisoner attempt the pocket of an unknown gentleman in the crowd, and indeed take a handkerchief therefrom, which being a very old one, he deliberately put back again, after trying it on his own countenance. For this reason he took the dodger into custody as soon as he could get near him, and the said dodger being searched as upon his person a silver snuff-box, with the owner's name engraved upon the lid. This gentleman had been discovered on reference to the court guide, and being then and there present, swore that the snuff-box was his, and he had missed it on the previous day, the moment he had disengaged himself from the crowd before re reference to. He had also remarked a young gentleman in the throng, particularly active in making his way about, and that young gentleman was the prisoner before him. 
Have you anything to ask this, this boy? Said the magistrate. I wouldn't use myself by sending him home no conversation with him, replied the daughter. Have you anything to say at all? Do you hear his worship ask if you've anything to say? inquired the jailer, nudging the silent dodger with his elbow. Obey your pawn, said the dodger, looking up with an air of abstraction. You redress your own to me, my man. I never see such an out-and-out -out young wagabond, your worship, observed the officer with a grin. Do you mean to say anything, you young shaver? No, replied the dodger. Nor here, for this ain't a shop for justice. Besides which, my attorneys are breakfasting this morning with our president of the House of Commons. There's always yet something to say elsewhere, and so will he. And so will a very numerous respectable servant acquaintance who is will make them bigs when they've never been born. All they've got their footmen to hang them up by their own coat pegs afore they let them come out this morning and try it all upon me. Oh, there, he's fully committed, interposed the clerk. Take him away! Come on, said the jailer. Oh, 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 come on, replied the dodger, brushing his hat with the palm of his hand. Ah, to the bench. It's no use, you're fine. I will show you no mercy, no happy of it. You pay for this, my fine fellows. I wouldn't be you for something. I wouldn't go free now if you should fall down on your knees and ask me. Here, came me over prison. Take me away! With these last words, the dodger suffered himself to be led off by the collar, threatening till they got into the yard to make a parliamentary business of it, and then grinning in the officer's face with great glee and self-approval. Having seen him locked up by himself in a little cell, Noah made the best of his way back to where he had left Master Bates. After waiting here some time, he was joined by that young gentleman, would prudently abstain from showing himself until he had looked carefully abroad from his snug retreat, and ascertained that his young friend had not been followed by any impertinent person. The two hastened back together to bear Mr. Fagan the animating news that the Dodger was doing full justice to his bringing up and establishing for himself a glorious reputation. End of chapter 42 of Oliver Twist